Chapter 14, Part 2 of Twenty Years of the Republic, 1885 to 1905, by Harry Thurston Peck. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Last Years of McKinley, Part 2. Even more unfortunate was a bitter controversy between the friends of Rear Admiral Sampson and those of Rear Admiral Schley, in which it may be said, to the honor of both these officers, that neither took any active part. Note 34, page 623. At the beginning of the war, the former had been promoted to the chief command of the fleet in Cuban waters, although previously he had been of rank inferior to Schley. This promotion was in accordance with the prevailing sentiment of naval experts. Admiral Sampson represented the type of naval officer who is above all else strictly and most commendably professional. Cold in temperament, clear-headed, dispassionate and self-controlled, he had many of the traits that were to be found in Moltke and that contributed so largely to that soldier's phenomenal success. His one thought was to perform with absolute efficiency the tasks assigned him, and in so doing to spare no pains and to leave no details unnoticed or unprovided for. He had a high degree of scientific knowledge, and he represented what was best in the traditions of the old navy and in the aspirations of the new. He cared nothing for popular applause and never suffered any thought of it to influence his actions. Those who did not know him well criticized him as too reserved, too austere, and in fact as too professional. His tactlessness indeed was at times almost repellent. When upon his tardy arrival at the Battle of Santiago, Commodore Schley signaled him a message of enthusiastic congratulation, Sampson made the coldly curt reply, Report your casualties. But in the Navy he was regarded with profound respect, and his promotion was marvelously justified by the event. The smashing of Cervera's fleet was just as much his work as though his own hand had fired every gun upon that memorable day of victory. Rear Admiral Schley was a very different type of man. He was, first of all, a man of impulse, of eager action, in fact more typically French than Anglo-Saxon. He was far more easy-going than Admiral Sampson, less intellectual, less steady, less sure of himself in any sudden emergency as was shown by his hesitating and dilatory course when ordered to blockade Cervera in Santiago. Admiral Schley kept an eye upon the public and he loved the approval of the public. Applause was very sweet to him and he knew something of the ways and arts of the politician. His impulsiveness, his urbanity, and his lack of reserve made him liked by many whose standards of judgment were personal and not professional. To these he seemed delightfully human, while Admiral Sampson was possibly regarded as a naval martinet. After the war, his friends very unwisely ascribed to him the chief honors of the victory at Santiago, declaring that he was actually in command, while Admiral Sampson had arrived only at the conclusion of the fight. This nettled the latter's friends, and they retorted by pointing to Schley's disobedience of orders, by criticizing his maneuvers in the battle, and at last by accusing him in naval phrase of being gun-shy. Accusation was met with counter-accusation, until at last Admiral Schley very properly demanded a naval court of inquiry, which was granted. The court was composed of Admirals Dewey, Ramsey, and Benham and after a patient consideration of all the facts, it rendered a report to the effect that Admiral Sampson had been really in command of the fleet at the Battle of Santiago, and at the same time that there was no ground for any aspersions on the courage and coolness of Admiral Schley while under fire. The court declined to consider Admiral Schley's alleged disobedience of orders prior to the blockade of Santiago, holding that whatever his conduct may have been at that time, it had been condoned by the Navy Department in failing to relieve him of his command, and by Congress in advancing him to the rank of Rear Admiral. 
the findings of the court were approved by President McKinley, and the unpleasant controversy gradually came to an end even in the press. A striking tribute was paid to Admiral Sampson by his fellow officers on his retiring from command. The scene has been described by a well-known man of letters in these words. When the time arrived for Admiral Sampson to surrender the command of the fleet he had brought back to Hampton Roads, he came on deck to meet there only those officers whose prescribed duty required them to take part in the farewell ceremonies as set forth in the regulations. But when he went over the side of the flagship, he found that the boat which was to bear him ashore was manned by the rest of the officers, ready to row him themselves and eager to render this last personal service and then from every other ship of the fleet there put out a boat also manned by officers to escort for the last time the commander whom they loved and honoured note thirty five page six twenty six few of those who became conspicuous by their achievements in the war escaped some measure of detraction or neglect general shafter's name was soon forgotten other generals of the regular army who, in spite of the blunders of the department fought so brilliantly in Cuba and the Philippines, received only a grudging recognition from the nation as a whole. Lieutenant Hobson, whose gallant exploits on the Merrimack made him for the moment a popular idol, became afterwards the target of almost universal ridicule. Some foolish girl among a throng of those who welcomed him on his return threw her arms around him and kissed him and other women still more foolish tried from time to time to follow her example until the comic papers turned the whole thing into a cheap joke and coined the verb to hobsonize that is to kiss a man against his will one exception to the list of those who were neglected or even vilified was found in the person of mr theodore roosevelt of new york mr roosevelt at the opening of the war was assistant secretary of the navy his active, forceful, and impulsive nature, coupled with an intense enthusiasm, had done much to stimulate the activities of the department in which he served. When war was formally declared, Mr. Roosevelt raised the regiment known as the Rough Riders, the first volunteer United States cavalry, and went to Cuba as its lieutenant colonel, the colonel being Dr. Leonard Wood, until that time an army surgeon. Colonel Roosevelt's personality was such as readily attracted the attention of newspaper writers in search of the picturesque, his spectacular performances at the Battle of San Juan gained for him a vast amount of public notice, so that to the popular mind he seemed to have won the day almost single-handed, like an old-time hero of romance. Note 36, page 627. Returning home, he narrated his adventures in various magazine articles and public speeches, and no one was permitted to forget him. Not long after his regiment had been mustered out, Mr. Roosevelt became the Republican candidate for the governorship of New York, and was elected by a plurality of 18,000 votes, his success being very largely due to the prestige of his military service. When peace was finally declared, the nation leaped at once into an era of unprecedented prosperity. As is always the case, a brilliantly successful foreign war stimulated commercial activity in every quarter. The American people no longer suffered from that intangible ailment which during the second administration of Mr. Cleveland had been styled a general lack of confidence. Now they were, if anything, overconfident, with the result that the year 1899 became an annus mirabilis in the records of American commerce and finance. Capital, which had long been locked up by its timid owners, now came forth and reaped abundant profits. All the staple products of the country were in keen demand, and prices soared almost from day to day. For the first time in American economic history, the volume of foreign trade for the single year amounted to more than $2 billion. 
In the iron and steel trade, prices increased more than 100% during the year. The growth in textile manufacturers was almost equally remarkable. Agriculture shared in the general prosperity, mortgages being rapidly cleared off, savings banks' deposits increasing, new and improved buildings and implements being used, while comforts and even luxuries hitherto unknown were now enjoyed. The price of raw cotton rose within the year 30%, while the price of wool almost doubled in the same period. Note 37, page 628. On October 12th, the stock of gold in the United States Treasury amounted to $258 million, the highest figure since the foundation of the government, while the gold in actual circulation reached the enormous sum of $703 million. Mr. James T. Woodward, president of the New York Clearinghouse Commission, wrote, All trade reports show that our factories are taxed to their utmost capacity in filling their orders. The railroads are unable to cope with the traffic that is offered, not having sufficient equipment to haul the raw materials to the factories and mills, or to carry the finished product to the wholesaler and jobber. And on every hand we hear of a record-breaking business and constantly increasing wages, the latter in many cases as much as 10 and 15 per cent. Note 38, page 628. The winning of a foothold in Asia stimulated American trade throughout the East. Imports from Asia showed an increase in this one year of $40 million, as against a smaller increase in exports of about $6 million. With the West Indies, there was an increase in imports of $14 million and in exports of some $15 million. In exports generally, the most noticeable circumstance was the volume of manufactured goods sent abroad. The United States began to compete successfully with British ironmasters, not only in distant parts of the world, such as India and Australia, but in Great Britain itself. On the whole, the year 1899 saw an almost furious commercial activity, a steady rise in the prices of staple goods, and an unprecedented confidence in the immediate business future of the country. There were, of course, many causes for this revival of prosperity. In the first place, the people had pinched and saved for years and had therefore in a measure diminished the burden of their debts. Again, the surplus stock of manufactured goods had been gradually consumed, the more speedily because so many mills and factories had either been shut down or had been working on half-time. Still further, as has already been noted, there was the stimulus of the war and the lavish expenditures by the government for supplies of every sort and for transportation. But back of all these causes there was another even more important of which, however, only scientific economists recognize the profound significance. The demonetization of silver and the practical adoption of the gold standard in the preceding decade had limited the medium of exchange for commercial purposes and had tended to cause an increasing contraction in the money market. The enhanced value of the dollar, as measured in gold, would in consequence have sent prices lower and lower, and would thus have steadily increased the burdens of the debtor class not only in the United States, but throughout the entire world. As Mr. Charles Francis Adams expressed it, in speaking of the adoption of the gold standard, Thereafter, in the great system of international exchanges, silver ceased to be counted a part of that specie reserve on which drafts were made. Thenceforth, the drain, as among the financial centers, was to be on gold alone. In the whole history of man, no precedent for such a step was to be found. So far as the United States was concerned, the basis on which its complex and delicate financial fabric rested was weakened by one half and the cheaper and more accessible metal. That to which the debtor would naturally have recourse in discharge of his obligations was made unavailable. 
it could further be demonstrated that, without a complete readjustment of currencies and values, the world's accumulated stock and annual production of gold could not, as a monetary basis, be made to suffice for its needs. A continually recurring contest for gold among the great financial centers was inevitable. A change which, in the language of Lecky, beyond all other effects most deeply and universally the material well-being of man, had been unwittingly challenged. Note 39, page 630. This contradiction of the currency would naturally have been hastened with the increase of the world's population and with the growing demand for gold for use in the arts. The disastrous result of such conditions could have been averted in only one of two ways, either by restoring silver to its former place as was proposed by Mr. Bryan, or by an unforeseen and unexpected addition to the world's stock of gold. It was the second solution which was actually arrived at, and this was due to the achievements of the explorer and the man of science. In August of 1896, a roving miner named Cormac found himself near the Klondike Creek in the remote Canadian territory of Yukon, a region 1,300 miles northwest of the city of Seattle and almost within the Arctic Circle. In this desolate and nearly unknown spot, Cormac discovered indications of rich gold deposits. At that time, even the rudest habitation had not yet been erected there. A year later, some 15,000 fortune-seekers had reared a ragged sort of city in this barren waste and were enduring the horrors of an Arctic winter for the sake of the precious metal which the frozen earth reluctantly gave up to them. Note 40, page 631. Still larger deposits were subsequently discovered in the Nome district of Alaska, while the beach sands and river gravels at the head of Cook's Inlet proved also to be richly auriferous. During the few years which immediately followed upon these discoveries, the districts mentioned yielded not far from $140 million worth of gold. Almost coincidentally, the production of the South African gold mines increased so rapidly as to bring forth nearly $100 million annually. The unexpected, therefore, actually happened. The end which Mr. Bryan had had in view was accomplished in another way, not by the appreciation of silver, but rather by the depreciation of gold, or at least by the operation of causes which prevented gold from becoming scarcer. This fact explains the comparatively slight friction attending the passage of a very important financial measure in the year 1900. The congressional elections of 1898 had somewhat reduced the size of the Republican majority in the House but it had also eliminated from the Senate a number of the silver advocates, so that the upper chamber for the first time contained a working majority of senators favorable to the gold standard. What had hitherto been in practice the financial policy of the government was now embodied in formal legislation. A so-called currency bill was introduced into the House on December 4, 1899, and with some amendments became law on March 14, 1900. It declared the gold dollar to be the standard unit of value and all other forms of money in use to be redeemable in gold. It established a gold reserve of $150 million and directed the Secretary of the Treasury to sell bonds to replenish this reserve whenever it should fall below $100 million. Note 41, page 632. The Currency Act carried out the pledges made in the Republican platform of 1896 and both at home and abroad it strengthened the financial credit of the United States. The buoyant feeling which was perceptible in the business world found instant expression in the centers of speculation. Hundreds of millions of dollars had been added to the market value of the shares listed on the New York Stock Exchange alone, with the result that speculation assumed extraordinary proportions. 
new enterprises and new combinations of capital were almost daily announced to an interested and eager public. The business done in Wall Street during the first three months of 1899 was greater by nearly 15 million shares than during the first three months of 1898. There was a keen demand for the so-called industrial stocks, and this demand was supplied and oversupplied by the flotation of new companies, which were capitalized at sums ranging from $150 million down to $50 million. Existing companies also greatly increased their capital, or in popular language, watered their stock, in order to form combinations which in effect were trusts. Money was easy, profit-making easier, the speculative disposition developed with rushes, the industrial fever was high. Promoters crowded into Wall Street and madly rolled out gigantic capitalizations. The era of consolidation was on all sides proclaimed as present and as full of blessings. Note 42, page 633. Even a sharp reaction which occurred late in the year was treated lightly and was optimistically called a prosperity panic. At this time there came conspicuously into public notice a number of bold financiers who, being already possessed of great fortunes, amazed the country and, in fact, the world by the magnitude of their operations. The promoter and the underwriter were continually forming new trusts, or holding companies, into each of which were merged a large number of smaller properties. Thus, the Corporation Trust Company of New Jersey became the agent of 700 corporations with an aggregate capital of $1 billion. The New Jersey Corporation Guarantee and Trust Company represented 500 corporations with not less than $500 million capital. The combined capital of such combinations as were actually trusts amounted to more than $4 billion. A scientific economist has estimated that the addition to the capitalization of the country in the brief period which is now under consideration exceeded the total capitalization of all the manufacturing companies established in the United States during the 30 years between 1860 and 1890. Note 43, page 633. The underwriters and promoters who affected these combinations reaped huge profits. Thus, Messrs. J.P. Morgan and Company, who promoted the United States Steel Corporation and advanced it $25 million in cash, received in return $106,800,000 in its preferred and common stock. For promoting the American Tin Plate Company, Mr. W.H. Moore received $10 million in the common stock of that concern. The persons who promoted the Distilling Company of America were paid in stock amounting to $24 million. The disproportion between the capital of some of these companies and the market value of their securities was startling to conservative financiers. Thus, the United States Leather Company was capitalized at $125 million, while the market value of its stock was about $50 million. The United States Steel Corporation was overcapitalized to the extent of about $830 million. Note 44, page 634. The bigness of these extraordinary figures and the rapidity with which such profits were made dazzled men's minds so that they became drunk with the passion of money-getting and blind to all other standards and ideals. They thought and spoke in millions, and the Napoleons of Wall Street became in a sense heroes and demigods. Men and women and even children all over the country drank in thirstily every scrap of news that was printed in the press about these so-called captains of industry, their successful deals, the off-hand way in which they converted slips of worthless paper into guarantees of more than princely wealth, and all the details concerning their daily lives, their personal peculiarities, their virtues and their vices. 
to the imagination of millions of Americans, the financial centers of the country seemed to be spouting streams of gold into which anyone might dip at will, and every Wall Street gutter figured as a new pactolus. The men who represented the achievements of this era were of varied types. Most conspicuous among them all was Mr. J. Pierpont Morgan, whose bold conceptions successfully wrought out attracted the attention of both hemispheres. Mr. Morgan was a gentleman of cultivated taste who, as a young man, had inclined for a time toward the scholar's life. He pursued his studies at the Boston Latin School, where he read the classics leisurely and was grounded thoroughly in the old-fashioned education. Later in Germany he spent some time at the University of Göttingen, where he heard lectures in history and political economy, and won such distinction by his mathematical work as to receive the offer of a professor's chair in that historic institution. He became in after years a connoisseur of the fine arts, a collector of rare books and manuscripts, and a patron of science and learning. But these were only the diversions, the peruga of an extraordinary career. Wall Street and Lombard Street both spoke of him and of his achievements with bated breath. His schemes for multiplying ordinary fortunes into colossal accumulations of wealth made him appear to the small fry of finance, a modern Midas whose magic touch turned everything to gold. Haughty and often arrogant in bearing, he asserted an irresistible influence over all he met, and he justified their belief in him by the inviolability of his plighted word, no less than by the great success which seemed for a time to be inseparable from his enterprises. It was he who organized in 1901 the United States Steel Corporation, capitalized at $1,404,000,000, a company which swallowed the plants, the bonds, and the stocks of ten of the largest corporations of the world. Note 45, page 635. Of an entirely different type was Mr. Andrew Carnegie, who came to the United States from Scotland when a mere child, and at the age of twelve was set to work in a Pennsylvania cotton mill on a weekly salary of $1.20. Subsequently, he became a telegraph operator employed by the Pennsylvania Railroad, and after some years the superintendent of an important division of that road. Mr. Carnegie was canny, even beyond the proverbial canniness of his countrymen, and little by little, through the judicious purchase of stocks, he secured an interest in oil-producing concerns. Mr. Carnegie's investments presently netted him a comfortable fortune, with which in 1865 he began the manufacture of iron. Protected by the high tariff, his ventures proved remarkably successful, and he very shrewdly acquired valuable coal and ore beds. His relations with the railroads also gave him great and special advantages. When the United States Steel Corporation was formed, Mr. Carnegie's company had to be bought out. And it is said that in the negotiations attending this sale, the Scotchman outmaneuvered even Mr. Morgan. He did, at any rate, receive in exchange for bonds and stock valued at $217 million, an allotment of 5% bonds in the steel trust of a par value of $304 million, constituting a mortgage not only upon the former Carnegie Works, but upon all the other plants absorbed by the new corporation. Mr. Carnegie then retired from active business, devoting himself to the building of libraries, to fostering education by his munificence, and to posing as an authority upon almost every subject of human interest, from Homeric criticism to spelling reform, and becoming rather famous for his dictum to the effect that, to die rich is to die disgraced. Note 46, page 636. Mr. John D. Rockefeller and Mr. Philip D. Armour, the respective organizers of the Standard Oil Company and the so-called Beef Trust, 
were men who laid the foundations of their colossal fortunes first of all by the minutest attention to small savings. Mr. Rockefeller studied carefully every possible method of avoiding waste in the handling of oil, while Mr. Armour contrived to convert every part of each slaughtered animal, horns, hoofs, hide, hair, bones, and bristles, into a marketable product. Yet their fortunes would never have exceeded moderate limits had they not been able to secure secret advantages as against their rivals from the railways. Other exponents of the new wealth were Mr. H. H. Rogers, the audacious and powerful manager of Mr. Rockefeller's company, Mr. J. W. Gates, who came out of the West at this time and who was a sublimation of the reckless speculative type of financier, and Mr. August Belmont, Mr. Charles T. Yerkes, and Mr. Thomas F. Ryan, who by ingenious management absorbed valuable franchises for street railways in New York and Chicago, which paid their owners immense annual sums while yielding next to nothing to the cities which had improvidently granted them such favors. These and scores of other capitalists consolidated not only the related parts of particular industries and enterprises, but they massed together unrelated interests. Thus, Mr. Rockefeller, in control of the Standard Oil Company, absorbed also the amalgamated Copper Company and in time linked with these corporations two powerful chains of banks. Through the National City Bank of New York, the combination assumed practical control of more than 50 other banking institutions in various parts of the country and at least a dozen trust companies together with the Mutual Life Insurance Company. It was estimated that they could influence within New York City alone not less than $108 million of banking capital, $474 million of deposits, and $323 million of loans. In like manner, Mr. Morgan was practically the master of another chain of banks and trust companies, of the New York Life Insurance Company, and of the Equitable Life Assurance Society, commanding an equal aggregation of capital. Together, these two alliances have at their disposal nearly one-half of the banking capital of New York City. Not only are they ready at a moment's notice to loan millions and to undertake any vast enterprise for the favored trust, but by their preponderance in the money market they are able to force the rivals of the trust to borrow at disadvantageous rates. Note 47, page 638. It is not surprising that the same wave of materialism which was in full flow elsewhere should submerge every department of the national government. The era of consolidation which was declared to be a blessing was ascribed wholly to the Dingley Tariff Law and to the dominance of the Republican Party. Mark Hanna was now the spokesman of the administration and already one of the leaders in the Senate. That body naturally conservative looked somewhat askance at the prominence of one who had but just entered the senatorial order. Mr. Hanna, however, while not obtrusive, broke through the unwritten laws which repressed the activities of new senators. His hard-headed, indomitable business sense and his great force of character made it impossible to ignore him. Though not an orator, he could speak with force and point upon many questions. He was never abashed, and he had a fund of tough, dry humor at his command. At first, one or two of the older senators attempted to teach this neophyte his proper place but none of them cared to make the attempt a second time. Mr. Hanna met all thrusts with imperturbable serenity and never failed in his repost. Whenever he spoke, his colleagues and the galleries as well paid him the unusual compliment of an appreciative silence. Little by little, too, it came to be known that, because of his practical good sense, his services were really valuable upon committees and in the everyday work of Congress of which the public knows and cares but little. Moreover, he was a man of his word, 
direct and upright in all personal relations, and courteous to the many strangers with whom he came in contact. It was only because he embodied and typified all the forces of materialism that he was still assailed by a part of the press and by the opposition. The multiplication of trusts, the absorption of franchises by the favored few, and the building up of special interests by special legislation, these things Mr. Hanna honestly believed to be in essence good. And therefore he favored subsidies for American shipping and every other form of bounty which would artificially make some classes of Americans more prosperous than others. His spirit was, in truth, the spirit of the day. The nation, for the moment, dazzled by the evidences of material prosperity, accepted the new gospel, and the voice of opposition was little heeded. In 1899, the government of the United States had an opportunity to requite, though in a very small degree, the friendliness which Great Britain had displayed during the war with Spain. The Transvaal Republic and the Orange Free State had challenged the British Empire to a contest in which the disparity of the contending forces seemed at first sight almost ludicrous. The bravery of the Boers, however, coupled with their skill in adapting their warlike operations to the physical conditions of the country, led at first to severe reverses to the British arms. Those continental nations which had sympathized with Spain and which, but for Great Britain's attitude, might have attempted intervention on her behalf, now sneered and mocked at English valor. In several chancelleries there were concocted sinister schemes which under some conditions might have been transmuted into actions still more sinister. In the United States there no doubt existed a certain sympathy with the Boers, springing from an admiration of their fighting qualities and from the natural good will which goes out to the weaker of two antagonists. But the American government had not forgotten what Lord Ponsfold had done for the American cause in Washington and what Captain Chichester had done in Manila Bay. Its neutrality in the Boer War was modeled on the neutrality of Great Britain in 1898. It was frankly benevolent toward the latter power. British agents were allowed to purchase in the United States great numbers of horses and mules for the use of the Queen's Army in South Africa, and even to make enlistments in a quiet way. Later, when a number of Boer delegates came to Washington with an appeal for either mediation or actual intervention, President McKinley consented to receive them at the White House only as private individuals. Though he chatted with them pleasantly, he said no word about the war and when they approached the subject, he blandly called their attention to the beautiful view which could be seen from the windows of his drawing-room. The enemies of England received neither aid nor comfort from the American government, and presently the crisis passed. Another link, however, had been forged in the chain of interest and understanding which united the two English-speaking nations. In the early months of the year 1900, the impending presidential election began to arouse the interest of politicians. Yet even among politicians, this interest was but a languid one. That President McKinley would be renominated without opposition had long been a foregone conclusion. That he would be elected was regarded as almost equally inevitable. The country was so prosperous, and the government had on the whole been so well administered, as to give the Democrats no popular issue, not even the issue of discontent. The four years which had elapsed since 1896 had done very little to unite the demoralized opposition. No new leader had come to the front. Mr. Bryan, in spite of the defeat which he had suffered in 1896, was still the dominant figure in his party, and it was held that he might have the nomination if he chose to lead what was likely to be the forlornest of forlorn hopes. When the Republican Convention assembled in Philadelphia on June 20th, the only topic of animated discussion was the question whether Governor Roosevelt of New York would accept a nomination for the vice-presidency.
Mr. Roosevelt's position was somewhat peculiar. As governor, he had alienated the sympathy of the great corporate interests by securing the passage of a much-needed law imposing a tax upon corporation franchises. He had also estranged the so-called machine politicians of his state, the chief of whom was Senator Thomas C. Platt. Governor Roosevelt strongly desired to serve a second term as governor in order to carry out the reforms which he had instituted. Mr. Platt was anxious to get Mr. Roosevelt out of the way. The vice presidency of the United States was popularly supposed to be an innocuous and purely ornamental office, the occupant of which passed through it to a species of political oblivion. Senator Platt, therefore, did all in his power to foster a sentiment in favor of Mr. Roosevelt's nomination at Philadelphia. In this he found supporters who, unlike Mr. Platt himself, were enthusiastic friends of the New York governor. Mr. Roosevelt had lived long on the Western Plains. His ardent and unconventional manners endear him to the people of that section. Hence the delegates from the far western states came to Philadelphia, bent upon making him the candidate who was to divide the electoral honors with President McKinley. It is now well understood that President McKinley by no means shared this feeling, though he made no open signs of disapproval. Both he and Senator Hanna had a certain distrust of Mr. Roosevelt, whom they regarded as too impetuous a person to be wholly safe. Perhaps, in President McKinley's heart of hearts, there was a slight lack of cordiality based upon reasons that were purely personal. When Mr. Roosevelt was Assistant Secretary of the Navy, he had often fretted over what he held to be the extreme conservatism of the President, and in accordance with his natural impulsiveness, he had voiced his opinion to many persons in language that was by no means consistent with respect. McKinley has no more backbone than a chocolate eclair, was a favorite saying of his at that time and doubtless there were many tale-bearers to carry this and other like expressions to the presidential ear. But the very fact that Mr. Hanna was opposed to Mr. Roosevelt brought to the governor friends with whom he would otherwise have had no natural affiliations. Senator Key detested Mr. Hanna, and therefore, in order to displease him, he threw his influence in favor of Mr. Roosevelt's candidacy. Governor Roosevelt himself was quite sincere in his unwillingness to take the nomination. On June 18th, two days before the convention met, he read a statement to a large number of newspaper correspondents in which, after expressing his appreciation of the attitude of his many friends, he said, I feel most deeply that the field of my best usefulness to the public and the party is in New York State, and if the party should see fit to renominate me for governor, I can in that position help the national ticket as in no other way. I very earnestly ask that every friend of mine in the convention respect my wish and my judgment in this matter. Note 48, page 643. End of chapter 14, part 2.